if tourists come and see your gorillas or your elephants, that's fine. But if you're being paid for what they do, tourists can come or not. That's like the cherry on the icing on the cake. And we've been focusing on the cherry and ignoring the value of the cake, which is the ecosystem. Welcome to part two of our conversation with naturalist and conservationist Ian Redman. Part one of our conversation was the opening podcast for season two of Talking Apes and a chance to celebrate World Gorilla Day. But after 45 minutes, it was clear we were just getting started. With a deeper conversation about the potential role of keystone species like gorillas and forest elephants in the economy of valuing intact ecosystems and the services they provided. Hi, I'm your host, Jerry Ellis, and it's time to dig into the value and the importance of that cake Ian was just talking about. Now, Fabio just read a, a paper by um, an economist called Ralph Sharmi. Ralph, his day job is assistant director at the International Monetary Fund. So he's kind of respected senior economist, but he spends his evenings and weekends working out what natural ecosystems are worth. And he'd been on a holiday um, to watch whales, and he's sitting in a boat with a bunch of whale scientists being amazed by a blue whale near the boat. And they're all talking about carbon, and he's looking at the whales saying, look, there's a blue whale. And he hadn't appreciated the link between whales and carbon, but they told him the link, and they gave him some papers, and he went home and did calculations and found that over the course of his or her life, a great whale, a humpback or a blue whale, is responsible for the additional sequestration of about $2 million worth of carbon. And what's the main cause of death of whales in the oceans these days? Now that there isn't commercial whaling in most of the world's oceans, it's ship strikes. Just accidental. Whoops, sorry, didn't notice that whale there. And it's instead. Now, if the next day that ship's captain were to get a phone call from an insurance company and say, oh, we hear you hit a whale, that would be $2 million that we're due to pay out, and you're not covered. We're not covered? That's going to change things. And and Ralph is part of a thing called the Blue Boat Initiative off Chile, where they're fitting mechanisms to the front of ships, which in the past, there was no motivation to do so. But given this knowledge that whales are so important, whales are important because they, they feed deep and they come up and poo near the surface. And, and they don't produce dung like elephants in big balls. They produce, and this is a lovely poetic word, fecal plumes. <laughs> fecal plumes. Yes. Uh, big clouds of, of fecal matter, which fertilizes the phytoplankton, which feeds the fish. So fishery, fisheries are, are boosted where there are whale populations. And, and the phytoplankton, as, as the scientists will tell us, uh, sequester and store about half the world's greenhouse gas emissions and produce about half the world's oxygen. Maybe it's 40%. Don't quote me on it. But Essentially, every other breath you take, you should thank the phytoplankton and the whales that fertilize them. So that, that, that's Fabio had read this and said, OK, well, I just discovered this difference that elephants make in a forest, sent the paper to Ralph, said, can, can you tell me what elephants are worth? And he did some sums and it's crazy. So he sent it round to his professors of e e economics colleagues and, and said, are my figures right? And they said, what's this about? He said, I'll tell you after, just tell me. Are the maths correct? Singular. The <laughs> mathematics, are they correct? And, and they came back and said, yep, yep, that, that's, all, that all, that's all fine. What's it about? And he said, well, it turns out that each individual forest elephant over the course of his or her life, which might be 60-odd years, 65 years, 
is responsible for the additional sequestration and storage of $1.75 million worth of carbon. Oh, hmm. that's a lot of money. Wow. Um, and, and that's at the price of carbon as it was in 2019 on the European exchange. That's more than tripled. So now you're looking now, at maybe $5 yeah, million, exactly. dollars, upwards of that per elephant. So is you know I, I was I was going to ask you like looking forward into the next five to ten years like what what you thought we if there were a single thing that we need to think about in terms of how do we change the 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 narrative around what we're doing on this planet it almost sounds from that we need to take the time to put the put the sort of ecological environmental value onto every species we can i mean if we've if this is if this is the story behind a blue whale and this is the story behind a forest elephant what yeah. is it what beyond tourism what is a gorilla worth? Exactly. what is and, a chimpanzee worth? what is, is a really important phrase because if tourists come and see your gorillas or elephants that's fine but if you're being paid for what they do tourists can come or not that's like the cherry on the icing on the cake and we've been focusing on the cherry and ignoring the value of the cake, which is the ecosystem. Well, see, exactly. I mean, that's what it would take Western lowland gorillas, for example. I mean, I, I, I say this often to people and they're kind of astounded is the fact that millions of people see a Western lowland gorilla year because those are the only gorillas in zoos. But very few hundreds ever see one in the wild. And that includes researchers. So yeah. how do you put a value on this species that no one sees in the wild so that okay. you ensure that yeah. its place in the wild is? And, we and don't have the data You yet. just described it. We, we don't have the, <laughs> just the, the Fabio it. of primatology who has found a forest where there used to be gorillas and, and another one where there still are and work out what the measurable difference is. And, and given that gorillas are sympathetic with elephants, it's hard to tease out the two. We know, this is what I was going to say about Cahuza Viega, that the militias and, and poachers, sometimes the same thing, um, have taken out most of the forest elephants. So the forest is changing. Vines that used to be kept in, in check by elephants are now covering trees, which are causing the trees to die. Some of those are gorilla food plants. So, so it's changing, making the habitat less good for gorillas and less good for carbon sequestration because big old trees are dying. And the ones that rush in and grow fast there are the fast-growing ones, the ones that have light wood. And of course, if, if you're thinking of forests as carbon storage, you've got a cubic meter of wood that is denser, then that's more carbon. So trees that grow slowly and have a lot of carbon in are the ones that give you the permanence. And so where a forest has been cleared and then pioneer species have rushed in and grown quickly, that's all rapidly growing light wood. And they're the ones that elephants and, and gorillas will actually feed on and, and sort of keep down until the slow-growing ones come up and become the dominant ones. So that, that, that ecosystem is being damaged. Um, but just to answer your question about, about gorillas, um, back of an envelope calculation. Um, read about it in my article in Primate Eye. <laughs> I, I did a follow when I was the, the, the dung boy. <laughs> aka the worm boy, um, of beats me, a black backed gorilla, and collected, and he was on the edge of the group, so it was easier to follow him and not get his dong muddled up with the others. So I followed him from the, the night nest, stayed with him all day. He knew me, so it wasn't a problem in terms of the social interaction, and I collected all of his dung until 
the night nest. And he, he produced just over five kilos of dung. That's a blackback. Silverback would be, be much more than that. Probably, I don't know, seven to ten. It depends what they're feeding on, too, uh, as to how much the weight of the dung is. But females similar to blackback, younger gorillas obviously less. That would suggest that if you have a big family of 20 to 30 gorillas, 25 gorillas, the the, the dung output is going to be similar to a medium-sized elephant, forest elephant, smallish elephant. So if a family of gorillas was being paid the same as, just, just working elephant equivalents at the moment, because we don't have the hard data to, to do it accurately, but the concept is there. Gorillas are, are feeding on vegetation, often herbaceous growth and small stuff, and producing dung, which then sits on the forest floor and decomposes and feeds the big trees. So they're part of the, that process of gardening, and they disperse seeds. And, and what they do that elephants don't do is they build nests in trees. Very few elephants climb trees. And those that do don't build nests in them. You will know this. <laughs> so what does a gorilla nest do? It, it pulls in the branches into a tight ball and forms a sleeping platform. It's a bit like folding an umbrella. All that canopy is tightly packed into a ball. So it produces a light gap. And what does a gorilla do in its nest? Or when it gets up in the morning, it produces a huge pile of dung, often full of seeds of the previous day's fruit that it ate. So seeds land on the forest floor, wrapped in fertilizer, in a light gap. What better place could there be to start your life as a seedling? Uh, so, so gorillas do things that elephants don't do and vice versa. And, and they're sort of interdependent. And I'm, I almost don't want to tease out those separate relationships because that's a very mechanistic, reductionist attitude. And we want a holistic approach to ecology. So that holistic approach would be perhaps recognizing just in terms of biomass, the biomass of a big family of gorillas might be equal to one small elephant. And if the elephant is being paid, uh, not, not the elephant itself isn't worth that, but the work the elephant does, it's making these species into a part of a service economy. And if someone's in the service economy, if you work in a call center in India, you're not valued for the work you do for yourself as a person, that's you as a human, but you uh, agree to sell so, so many hours of your time to work in a call center. Now, gorillas and elephants, hopeless at call centers, but very good at dispersing seeds and, and fertilizing forests for which they have never been paid or, or even really been recognized. And in our new carbon-conscious world, where companies want to offset their unavoidable greenhouse gas emissions while they change the technology, it's not an either-or. Offsets aren't instead of changing the technology, just buys you a bit of time. So right now we've got this window opportunity where conservation finance can come from the private sector, not philanthropy, not government aid, which is our taxpayers' money, which always has higher priorities in education, defense, and all those things, but through a business. So when you buy your mobile phone or, or your bottle of wine or whatever it is that you're buying, the company that manufactured it has, because they, they've signed up to the Paris Agreement, they want to reduce their um, greenhouse gas emissions, and those that they can't reduce, they're prepared to offset. So how are they going to offset them? They could pay for a machine in Iceland that sucks carbon out of the air and puts it underground. Well, that balances the carbon. It doesn't do anything for biodiversity. It doesn't help heal the ecosystems that we need to sustain life on Earth. But this is a, the pretext of rebalance Earth. It's a new initiative 
set up by Ralph Shami, by me, and by Walid al-Sakaf. And Walid is a blockchain specialist. So blockchain is a means of transferring money, tokenized form, uh, from one end of the world to the other, where the chain of custody is, is visible to all participants. So you can't scam it. If, you, if you've agreed that X percent is going to come to your community in the, in the forest because you're keeping the elephants or the gorillas safe, and we're pr you're proving every day or every few days when you see the known animals that become the clients of Rebalance Earth. So our client's elephants, let's call one, I don't know, let's be unoriginal and call him Jumbo. <laughs> so Jumbo the elephant um, is known because he's got a big hole in his right ear and, and funny shaped tusks. You can't miss him. Every time he walks past a camera traveler, every time he walks past a member of the community, hey, Jumbo, he logs it into his, his mobile phone that has been provided with, and that generates a credit for a day's work, 24 hours work. Uh, and if the elephant hasn't been seen for 10 days, that's 10 days' work. But it turns out if you divide 1.75 million by, by 60 years, that's about $30,000 a year or $80 a day. So potentially that elephant at the 2019 price of carbon is worth um, that amount. And, and whoa, that means that if there's a herd of elephants, maybe there's 20 in this herd, and they're all together, and you recognize certain individuals, so you can say, yes, I counted 20 elephants, we know some of them. That releases a lot of funds because you've just proved that they're alive and well and in their forest. And if they haven't been seen for a period of time, that number of days of, of tokens Asset-backed tokens is what Waleed calls them. He knows about this stuff. I'm just saying the words. But the concept is that, that companies can actually know who is sequestering their carbon in the sense of which elephant uh, or which gorilla as we expand outwards taxonomically and geographically until people are, are more aware of, of the benefit they get from. You, know, I've, uh, you perhaps know I've been banging on for years about the, the rain that the Congo Basin generates, the rainfall. Trees through evapotranspiration pump water into the atmosphere and then it spreads around the world and it falls in Amazonia. Until I saw this wonderful animation that you can find by searching for T341 rain at the top of the list. And I'm sure you use Ecosia to search it because that's the search engine that plants trees as you search. Um, T341 rain, and, and you'll see this wonderful animation of global precipitation speed it up so every day is just a second and the, and the orange pulsing in the congo basin and you can get this off off youtube so you can even drop it into this to, to show people it so they don't have to look it up themselves the the, the, the orange pulsing is, is, the, is, is the rainfall um and the white is supposed to be water vapor which of course is invisible but they just show it and you see how you know, if you, if you like your wine from California, you can trace where the weather patterns come back from Southeast Asia. So it's orangutans that are planting the trees that produce the Californian wine. But do they get any of the money from the price of a bottle of Californian wine? Nope. Likewise, South African wine or, or, or New Zealand or Australian wine, you can see that the rain system, rainfall systems that bounce off the Andes and sweep across South Africa and go across to Australia and New Zealand. All these ecosystem services are being provided to everyone on the planet, and yet none of us give them a thought. It's nature, it's natural. So Ralph Sharmi has written some very highfalutin economic analyses describing what he calls a new economic paradigm, where the economy, this 
great global construct that humans have, have made, doesn't regard nature as an externality separate from the economy. It's integral to the, of course, any ecologist will tell you an economy, ecology have the same root, eco from the Greek for home. It's a home. So economy is sort of home economics and, and ecology is home, how, how the species interact with each other. But it's the same root. And if the economy were to recognize that everything it does is based upon the ecology, and that's when the ecology is alive, in other words, at the moment, the only way you can make money from a tree is to cut it down and sell the timber. Living tree is worth nothing, unless you can get a tourist to come and photograph it, and then you might get some money off the tourist. And likewise, an elephant or a gorilla. And this is, you know, the mountain gorilla story has been turned around by the economic benefits of ecotourism. And there was a civil war in Rwanda and a genocide and tourism stopped. Or, or two and a half years ago, there was a pandemic. Tourism stopped. So if your whole conservation model is based on revenues coming in from tourism, it's very vulnerable to those kind of events. And some people are very nervous about going to Africa, a continent of 53, 54 countries. If there's a bomb goes off in one country, it's like being worried about going to California because someone sneezed in New York. <laughs> it is as relevant, the chances of, of being involved in a disease or a, or a terrorist outbreak on the other side of a very large continent. And you could fit the USA into Africa and, and have half the world left over. You know, you've seen that map, I'm sure, of, of or how many countries you can fit into. Yeah. So, so, so but, but people base their decisions on whether to travel or not on, on not necessarily rational thoughts, but on their fears. And they're very real fears for them. So if you don't want to go to Africa because in one country there's a civil war, it makes the tourism based on those visits very vulnerable. And of course, you've got the, the, the literal elephant in the room of climate change being affected by your flight. So we're all supposed to be trying to reduce our flights. And I feel very ambivalent about having gone to Africa Climate Week by plane. <laughs> um, but it's important to get these ideas into the minds of the negotiators that the animals matter. It's not just the trees. The, the, the ecosystems are what we have to focus on, and that includes the animals and, and the fungi and the, and the microorganisms, but that's even harder to get people excited about. <laughs> so, um, key message. Uh, animals really matter. There's a, a new book just about to be published. I've got a preprint here that I will give a free plug for. It's called Wildlife in the Balance by Simon Musto. And it really, um, I, I wrote the cover blurb and, and, and Simon's used it as a forward because he said that would just um, encapsulate it. And, and what I said was, you, you know how when you're looking at an optical illusion and you're looking at it and it's, and then suddenly you see the illusion and then you can't unsee it. And it's the same Information going into your eye. What changed? Or the, uh, you're looking at a, a piece of bark and there's a gecko on it, and you're seeing bark, bark, bark and then there's just you see an eye. Uh, oh, okay. Same visual input, and now you see the gecko. So I, I liken reading Simon's book to seeing gecko after gecko after gecko because he just explains it so well. Why animals matter, and, and why we just need more of them because there are so few left on the planet compared to humans and their livestock. It, it it took a few minutes to get there, but I think that answered my question when I, you know, and, and I'd I, I think maybe that's the best place to end. Um, 
the podcast today is when I said, you know, in, in I was thinking in the next five to 10 years, like what gives you hope? And maybe that's, maybe that is the ultimate challenge of especially people like you and me, which, I mean, we're communicators. I mean, we've spent a lot of our career trying to communicate what's happening to this planet, to other people. And maybe that's it. We need, it's maybe much of nature has been an illusion and we need to get them to see the geckos. See the gecko. That's a great, a great slogan. <laughs> well, you're a bit obscure for some people. Yes. But, but no, it's, it is valuing animals for what they do. Never mind how much DNA they share with us or, or how much we like them. Um, it's it's what they do. And, and that really applies to the less attractive species that attract, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But but most people don't get as excited about, about um, ugly species um, although that's it beginning to change, you know, some species that were traditionally considered ugly or, or just horrible uh, are now being recognized as actually really, really important. And if they happen to be keystone species, then you'd better start protecting them because we need them. We need the ecosystem that they are a part of. And it, it's not a luxury item that you might get around to eventually. It's actually central to our future survival on the planet. And that really is a message from from this year and and even from this pandemic, which most people I, I think so came out of our mistreatment of nature, um, so we we've got to do better. And and the diseases that keep erupting out of it over the last even twelve months or so. So, Ian, thank you so much. I know you have to rush off um, because this is a, a, you know sort of a. I, I always say about this podcast, I, I would love to do it in a pub over a pint of beer and just chat. And if we were in that pub, you'd say, I've got to run home and cook dinner because I've promised to cook dinner, which is the truth. You do have to to rush and, and cook dinner. So, Ian, I want to thank you so much for doing this. Um, it's always great to catch up with you. And you are always normally flying all over the planet, um, but you are involved with people less. all over the but planet. The, yes. The, the last three we, years of, of international UN meetings and FSC General Assemblies have all concertined together to the next three months. So I, I am, I, I'm sorry going to have to fly, but as soon as we get rebalance Earth off the ground, people can offset their carbon by protecting elephants. That would be something, wouldn't it? And, and lifting communities out of poverty. Um well, hopefully we'll embrace technology a little more so that we also, which we did over this pandemic, so we could have communication like this rather than yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, you, always you know, jumping there's, there's on an virtual airplane. travel on vicotourism.org. <laughs> and, and if you want to know more about the elephant carbon equation, rebalance.earth is the website. Okay. Easy to remember. All right. And again, thanks. Go cook dinner and uh, we'll see you very Take soon. Care. Stay healthy. Safe travels. Cheers. Bye-bye. You've been listening to part two of my conversation with Ian Redmond, naturalist and conservationist, as we focused on valuing the role of gorillas and other key forest species like elephants in maintaining the carbon health of the Congo Basin. This is Talking Apes, the podcast dedicated to raising awareness about the magic and wonder of apes like us. Our goal to create greater understanding about the threats apes face and the importance of their ecosystems on which we all depend. Before we go, a quick reminder to check out the new Talking Apes website at talkingapes.org. That's talkingapes.org. And there you'll find over 20 episodes from season one, 
information on future guests, and a link to all our social media activities. Talking Apes is supported in part by nonprofit Globio and by listeners like you. While on the website, if you'd like to support Talking Apes podcast, you can do so with your tax-deductible donation. Just click on the red Donate button in the upper right-hand corner. I'd like to thank assistant producer Demel Zaban for all of her great work behind the scenes on the podcast and all of her work on our online activities as well. And I'd especially like to thank you, listeners like you, for joining us as we start our second season exploring the world of apes, primates, and the forest homes they live. For everyone at Talking Apes, I'm Jerry Ellis. Thanks for listening. And tomorrow, challenge the world with curiosity and a smile.